back to the Duck Pond Wall, which is a little show on WEHCFM where we get to talk to alumni and find out what about the cool things that they're doing. And y'all, today's guest, I cannot wait for you to hear what she's doing because I cannot wait to hear what she's doing. Emily Allison, Emory and Henry class of 2019. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, I got to say, I got to say, so I'm just doodling around on Facebook and I get this little message and I'm not on TikTok and this was a TikTok video you sent me, right? Mm-hmm. But y'all, it's, it's Emily in this long, long period skirt and she's, and she's dragging big chunks of ice around and they're, they're cutting ice. She's got a huge saw and she's cutting out giant chunks of ice. Okay, Emily, I'm just going to start right there. What in the heck? are you doing? What is your job right now? Are you an ice cutter? What are you? <laughs> so officially my title is a heritage interpreter. I work for the DuPage County Forest Preserve District of DuPage County, Illinois, uh, right outside of Chicago. Okay. Specifically at Klein Creek Farm, which is a li- 1890s living history farm um, in, in, the, in the district. Uh, and in that TikTok that got shared, I was doing ice harvesting. It's an event we my site does every year. If the lake freezes well enough, that, that's always the dependable is if the lake freezes. Because in the 1890s, we didn't have refrigeration yet. We didn't have modern refrigeration. So they still had to keep things cold in the summer. So ice was going to be the way to do that. Um, okay, and so, ice harvesting. I didn't know you could grow your own ice. Can you plant it in the <laughs> spring? What happens? How do you, what does it mean to harvest ice? Yeah. Um, so unfortunately we can't plant ice. It's all dependent on mother nature on whether or not um, ice will form on the lake, especially with how warm it's gotten the last couple of years. Oh, yeah. um, but ice harvesting. So what we do is we do a very small minor version of what would have happened in the 1890s. In the 1890s, there were ice harvesting houses and large companies that would go out and harvest ice during the winter so that they could have it to sell year round basically and they would have these giant warehouses full of ice um, that they would sell all up and down the East Coast, West Coast, across the country so that people could refrigerate food. Because I mean, in the 1890s, you were starting to really figure out that, you know, maybe we should keep things refrigerated. Maybe we should not eat things that are gonna spoil. Um, but so what we do is we have a lake that's on the forest preserve we're on. Uh, we're, on t- we're on the Timber Ridge Forest Preserve. And we, so we have little Timber Lake which is a former quarry pit. And so it's only about five feet deep. So we're not too, too worried about falling in, but we know there's that threat because um, we are we are working on ice. Yeah. So what we do is we use something called a marking plow and we mark our field. We usually, depending on how much ice we want to harvest, could be anywhere from 50 feet wide. It's about a yard wide. Um, and we mark out our rows and squares with the marking plow and then come back with saws and pike poles and breaker bars and we form a channel that we have that lines up with a ramp that was built by um, other co-workers which then we use to float the ice that we break off down the channel and up to the ramp where we have a team of people usually a lot of volunteers and then of course the general public helps us out and we get it up the ramp and on to there's a, usually a waiting wagon um, and we work percherons at my job so we have about six Pertron draft horses that work with us year round. Um, Say that word again. Wait, what is that word? Pertron? Pertron. 
Uh, Percheron draft horses are an old French draft breed that got really popular in the U.S. during the mid-1800s, especially in Illinois. Um, they actually almost disappeared from the U.S. about mid-20th century because, of course, you're getting the, the, the rise of tractors and the popularity of mechanical vehicles to do your farming. So there wasn't really a need for draft horses as much anymore. But, so, these, so these are like big horses. They're work horses. Yes. So each of our horses weigh around 2,000 pounds apiece. Uh, their, their hooves are about the size of a dinner plate. <laughs> Easiest way to describe wow. it. Uh, wow. And all of our horses are taller than me. And for the folks who don't know me, I'm about five foot 10 and I typically wear boots. So that usually puts me between five, 10, six foot. So these tall horses are pretty tall. All right, we're gonna, oh, there's just so many questions. Emily, there's just so <laughs> many questions. So you're telling me that these places that had ice houses that where they sold ice, they actually would go out and cut out from a frozen lake, these giant chunks of ice and stick them in. How, how did they keep them? Did the ice sort of keep itself frozen? That seems like a weird self-promoting prophecy for ice. Who knew? So ice can somewhat self-insulate, but there's other things you can use like straw, sawdust. You pack it between your layers so your layers don't freeze together. Um, so we have a small ice house on the property where we store our ice all, all year until summer. So we usually, if we get enough ice, we can keep it till maybe July, August, if we get lucky. Sometimes we might just keep it till May, um, if it doesn't melt by then, depending on the weather. Um, but the larger ice houses, like I said, they were huge warehouse buildings. Um, and then there were ice delivery men during the 1890s and up until probably the 1920s, maybe even later as well. Um, who would drive their carts or their later their cars and deliver blocks of ice for refrigeration. And so that's how you would purchase your ice. If you didn't have an ice house in the backyard, like our farmhouse does, you'd have it delivered every other day. That is a wackadoodle story. I don't, I can't believe I didn't know that's how that worked. And, and nor did I know that you would keep it for that long. I think I just figured, I don't know what I thought. I don't know what I thought, but I sure didn't think it would stay that long. So when you harvest ice, you do need to harvest about double what you actually need because it does melt. Um, you are going to lose some of it. Right. So we have about eight feet tall, an eight feet tall stack of ice in our ice house right now. Uh -huh. So probably by the time May gets around, once it starts warming back up, um, we'll probably have about three fourths of it, maybe half depending on the weather. And then we'll use that for our programming that we do because we do a lot of programming with the public. We also run um, a historical summer camp for kids. And so the kids get to learn about, you know, like how to pick ice and um, use it for different crafts and food waste projects um, because we do a lot of cooking classes with those, ki with those kids. I'm thinking, okay, when you talk about getting twice as much as you need, I'm thinking of an episode of Seinfeld where they talked about shrinkage. And I'm thinking that's a little bit of what you're dealing with there is because it shrinks a little and goes away. Yeah. All right. So you walk out on the ice. I mean, it is, mm -hmm. it is a little bit scary. I don't care if it is just five feet deep. It's a little bit scary because you're not in, you're not in like easy to get off clothing. You're in like, you're in period costume. <laughs> you yeah, wear this no. big, long dread skirty thing that would be, would weigh you down to the bottom right quick. So for my job, I, four out of five days of my work week, I do wear 1890s period clothing. Um, not everything because it is winter I wear is technically period. So I do cheat a little, especially, um, so I live in Illinois now instead of the South <laughs> and in Illinois, it gets below zero and we have had several negative days. So I do wear modern snow pants under my dresses Good. because the wind is that bad and it cuts through everything. Um, but 
period wise, I wear my, my 1890s house work dress. I wear um, thermal layers. I wear petticoats. I have aprons that I put on. I have cross knitted cross body wraps. I have a wool jacket. I wear um, hats, gloves, gear, the whole, the whole shebang. It's not as heavy if it was an earlier period. <laughs> that is the nice thing. Um, and my stuff isn't as, as heavy as like some of my coworkers, just because a lot of my stuff is more out of cottons or flannels. Gotcha. I don't have as much wool product, but yes, it is definitely a heavy optic. Luckily that lake we're working on is only about five feet deep. So if I did break through, I still have like a foot and that's true. You're a tall yes. girl like me. I get it. Yeah. You could always pop your head up. I got you. Okay. That is helpful. Yeah. Well, so, so are people coming? I mean, you're, you're a historic interpreter. Are people coming to watch you harvest this ice? Do they come to watch this happen? Yeah. So we've actually finished ice harvesting for the season about two weeks ago. Um, Cause we did it several times to get as much as ice as we could as possible before the lake kind of the ice level on the lake became a little unstable and because we created so many basically pockets of thin ice from having to harvest. Um, so yeah, so our site is open to visitors 365, except for like a few holidays. And even yeah. those days there are staff coming on site because we are a working farm with 60 head animals. of livestock. Oh, yes. goodness. What, have, what um, kind of animals do you have? So like I mentioned earlier, we have the per six Pertron draft horses. We've got about 17, give or take, because we're actually getting ready to start lambing. We have about 17 sheep. Um, we have Cotswold. So all the animals on our farm are heritage breeds. So we have Cotswold sheep and Southdown sheep. Um, we're trying to kind of get our flock all the way to Cotswolds, which would be more accurate for the period and the area. Wait, um, Cotswolds in England or... Or yeah, Cotswolds, or? the Cotswold breed and Southdown breed are from kind of that area of Europe. Uh -huh. However, they would have been very common over here in the 1890s as oh. a sheep breed that was kept. We also have about 25, 30 chickens right now. We lost a few recently. Um, one of the unfortunate parts of being on a nature preserve is we have a lot of predators that live in the area and it's right. their home too. And we respect right. that. But sometimes they decide they need a, a chicken snack, which is unfortunate. Raccoons. <laughs> Raccoons, raccoons, or? minks, coyotes. Ooh, fun! Oh yeah, like, um, like a little tiny do. <laughs> yeah. So within our chickens, we've got spotted Sussex. We've got silver and golden lace Wyandotes. Ooh, um, pretty. We've got barred rocks. We have one turkey currently. She's a bourbon red, which is a heritage um, breed. She's very noisy. <laughs> I never knew how talkative turkeys were until I started working here. They don't shut up. Um, <laughs> the nice. Well, they think they think they know a lot of stuff. They do. That's they why we call them everything. Um, we have four cows on site. One is still a calf. She's about seven months old. And she's about 500 pounds. Her name is May. Um, we keep the breed we keep is called a milking shorthorn. So they are a multi-purpose breed. So they would have been kept for milk and they would have been kept for meat. So they can provide both on a farm. Oh, okay. Because today, a lot of our cow breeds and our cattle breeds are very divided into meat breeds and dairy breeds. And right. this is one of those kinds that can kind of do both. Um, so the other three cows are all adult cows. We have Liberty, Lady, and Frida. Um, one of the fun things about being, so our farm in the 1890s was a dairy farm. So that's why we keep dairy cows. Um, and we do milk um, about third to half of the year, depending on weather. So we can't really start milking until after they've calved. Um, and then we do usually end milking in about November. So they usually calve beginning of summer and then we end milking in November. And that's partially because we need them to dry up for winter, but also 
it gets cold in the barn. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of sitting in the barn and milking and below 20 degree weather. No, um, no, 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 no. I'm not a fan of doing much of anything in below 20 degree weather for sure. Yeah. So this farm acts as, like I said, like a living history museum. Is it under the auspices of like a, another museum or is it totally independent? So we are under the auspices of the DuPage County Forest Preserve. So we, um, they, this, our forest preserve owns about 13% of DuPage County, which is several, several thousand acres of land. Um, there's easily about between 15 to 20 forest preserve sites throughout the county that are open. Some are just nature spots, some are historical spots. Where I work at Klein Creek Farm is very unique in that it's a living history farm. I, we're actually one of three living history farms within a 50 mile radius, which is pretty cool. Um, the cool. other two are part of different county districts, but it's it's neat being in an area where there is so much living history because living history is such a niche field um, and there's not many sites across the country, but there are enough that they're there, but people don't always realize they're there. Yeah, it's a different way to get some history. I'm, you know, it's one thing to like walk through a bunch of exhibits and read little signs but your people come and watch you do all this and so while you're milking cows and cutting ice are you also stopping to say well now here's how this works and here's why I'm doing this and here's what it would have been like do you stop and interpret as you're going very much so so if you know colonial Williamsburg we're very different from them because they do first person interpretation so they're portraying somebody who lived during the period we do third person. So we're coming in as historians and saying, this is how the 1890s, this is how they did this kind of work, or this is how they would have done, this is how they dressed or how they would have styled a home um, or would have kept their family alive. But we're doing it at, we're coming in as a historical voice, not as that voice itself. So specifically at our site, Klein Creek Farm was owned by the Klein family in the 1890s. We don't portray the Kleins. We talk about 1890s farming in Illinois in general ah, gotcha. because it's a much broader subject. How in the world did you end up in this place? I saw on your, I did snoop a little, and I saw that you're a civic innovation history person, right? Mm -hmm. Did you double major? I did double major. Of course you did. And you, also, you also got up and put on lipstick and fixed your hair this morning, but whatever. You're that kid. Okay, so double major girl. What what were you kind of aiming to be doing with that, with that major? What's funny is originally when I got to Emory, I didn't want to be a history major. I didn't want to have anything to do with history or civic innovation. I wanted to be an equine studies biology double major because I wanted to be a large animal livestock vet. And then I took my first biology class and crushed that dream because <laughs> I failed miserably. Okay. I hear that story a lot. I'm going to be a doctor. Nope. Nope. Not going to be a doctor. Yeah. It happens a lot. Yeah. You're not. Alone. Yeah. So I had to change my mind really quick. And my mom was like, you really need to look at the civic innovation degree. And I was like, I don't know. She said, just take one class. Just take one class. And I said, okay. And I took my first ever class to, with Travis Prophet, who is amazing. He shifted so much of my kind of my world sphere at that point and like, redirected me, which is what I really needed. And that was a, yeah, so it was a social change movements class. I kind of reshifted. And then that in my sophomore year was when I, sophomore junior was when I added my history, history second degree on because, you know, I, I've always loved history. It's always been a part of my family, my life, whether it's been as antiquing or just general history studying. 
Um, and I loved it, but I didn't know what I want, would want to do with it because I'd always been told you can't really do anything with a history degree. So what I did um, the summer between my sophomore and junior years, I actually got a part-time internship at Carl Sandburg National Historic Site back home. So I'm originally from Western North Carolina, uh, below Asheville, Hendersonville area. And props to, props to Hendersonville, which has some unusual roads that GPS will get you lost on, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> And I've heard that story, <laughs> um, but I was like, you know, like, let's see if maybe some, some realm, cause I didn't want to teach. Well, in a way I do, end, I ended up teaching anyway, but not in the traditional classroom sphere. Right. I had grown up raised by teachers, you know, I had seen what they'd gone through and I didn't want to enter the general classroom, mm, but so I'm always like, here, let's look at, you know, maybe working for a national park or a museum. And I said, okay. And so I worked for Carl Sandburg National Historic Site for the summer absolutely loved it because I was like, okay, interpretation, that's where I want to go with things. So I added the public history certificate on um, because public history, I found out, kind of figured out what that is. And I was what like, is public this history? is it. So public history, the easiest, the easiest kind of generalization of it is public history is non-academic history. So that could be anything from museum work to nonprofit work to working on maps and remapping historical areas, to doing oral history work which is something I did while I was at Emory and Henry, working in living history sites, doing mostly just talking about doing interpretation and working outside of the academic, whether it's colleges, high schools, elementary schools realm. Well, and how do you prepare to be an interpreter? Am I right that you were also involved in some theater at Emory and Henry? I was involved in a little, I wasn't involved in theater per se. I did choir, um, but I was a part of Alpha Psi Omega, which is the theater arts honor society because I had done theater when I was in high school um, and I was always hanging out with the theater kids. And I really wanted to be involved in in a group like that because I was like, I need, I wanted to find, find my spot at Emory and I had a lot of friends in Alpha Psi. So I was like, well, Let's see if I can join because I, I know I'm not a theater major, but I am an artsy person. I am kind of, that's more my realm, which has worked out because I meet a lot of theater majors who end up working in historical interpretation. Well, I can see where it would be a handy little mm-hmm. little ex- experience to have in your hip pocket as you're, you know, doing this. Because, I mean, you are in some ways sort of playing a role. In- I do a lot of public speaking and a lot of like a program is honestly like doing it, doing a short play or monologue, because you have to memorize a whole series of historical facts and, and kind of what you put your own spin on it. Not to where you're changing the history, but right. you're explaining it in a way people will understand because I work, I give tours to anyone from pre-K, pre-K students to folks visiting in their eighties and nineties to the site. So I do the whole birth uh, kind of birth of ages of people who come and visit. That's hard. I mean, you know, you can't possibly do the same thing for little Tommy that you're going to do for old Thomas. You can you know. have the same basis, but then you change it. So like I on a regular basis, give a tour called we call our, my first farm visit. And so that's when we bring pre-Kers to second graders to the farm and they come with their schools or their aftercare programs or their homeschool programs. And they get to learn about, you know, this is why these are the animals on the farm. This, this is why we would have kept these animals on the farm. So we talk about like why we, why you keep horses or why you keep chickens because they might've been meat production, but they've also egg production, which is a way to raise money for the family. And we also talk about nature versus wild because 
were a very physical spot in a nature preserve that when everything else around us is going back to pre kind of pre-colonization wildlands and then you have this permanent little farm and kind of explaining kind of like why that's why that's important to talk about but in like second grader terms (laughs) well I don't know I think I can think of some older people who might like you you might need to hear that speech too yeah, just as a quick reminder, dear one, we're speaking with Emily Allison, Emory Henry class of 2019. You just finished. I mean, you just finished. Um, and she is an interpreter. So I work at Klein Creek Farm, which is part of the DuPage County Forest Preserve District. Like Monica said, I graduated from Emory in 2019, and I just graduated this past May from the University of West Florida with my public history master's degree in 2021. I now have a full-time job in the public history field working at a living history site, which is pretty cool. I did spend a little time before I got to this job. I did work as a park ranger this past summer. So I've kind of did a little bit of like, maybe this is the field I want to be in or the the area of the field, or is this the field? Where were you a park ranger? I worked as an interpretive ranger this past summer at Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore in Empire, Michigan. So I have just been a little bit all over the edges of Lake Michigan this year, um, which I've never before been to this region until I moved here. (laughs) Was Was that a big change? That had to be a big change. It was. Like I said, I'd never really been up to Michigan or kind of the Great Lakes region, but I got the opportunity and I went for it. Um, While I was working at Sleeping Bear Dunes, my role specifically was not just as an interpretive ranger, but to serve in talking about Anishinaabe lifeways and cultures, so talking about indigenous lifeways and cultures and working with the local indigenous tribes and groups that are in the the area um, that are still in the area because their history is the beginning of and the end of all the stories through, I mean, honestly, the entire country, That's but amazing. specifically for that region. You know, in addition to getting to share a lot, do you find you, do you love getting to learn a lot? I do. I have, I own way too many books. <laughs> <laughs> My parents can attest to that. I'm sure I still have hundreds of books. I had to leave in North Carolina when I moved because I just didn't have the space in the trailer for him. That's too sweet. Well, if you're going to have a bunch of stuff, then let it be booked. So I think that's fine. Well, and how many people visit Pine Creek annually? Um, So um, Pine Creek Farm probably gets about 200 to 500,000 people a year. That's a lot. Yeah. Well, it's when we are on the edge of um, Chicago. Right. So we are technically in the Chicago suburbs um, where we're located in DuPage County. So we get a lot of people that come from inner city. We get a lot of people that kind of live out in the suburbs. We get people coming in to visit. Do you have like, do you cover an SOL or anything like that where people, kids kind of have to come? I don't mean have to, like they don't want to, but just like it's Um, kind of required. Not quite. We have a lot of learning requirements that we meet with our programming for kids when they come. Um, And we do offer specific, like we do a big event called Day at the Farm once a year. And we, for anybody from like third graders to high schoolers, and it covers a lot of different learning requirements um, for them. Do you find that children seem surprised by things they run into? I, it seems like there's a huge disconnect for kids these days about, well, about nature in many cases mm-hmm. in the wild, but also just about like where where eggs come from and what, what's bacon exactly. Yes. Um, so that I, I think, honestly, I think that's one of my favorite parts of the job is kind of introducing kids to the idea of, you know, this is where your eggs come from. This is where food comes from. That's why these animals, as a living history site, we do process some of our animals for education because it was part of life back then. And it's still part of life for a lot of people. Are most of your visitors children or do you have, is it a mix? I mean, you said you had a little bit of everybody, but is it mostly children? 
Um, I would say it's a mix. We do get a lot of kids, but we have people of all ages that come to the site. Uh, yeah, because you're part of a nature preserve, would you not have to follow some conservation farming guidelines? Yes, we do. So we have a so we do have a creek that runs through our property, uh, kind of cuts our property in half actually. And so our fields are really near it, but we've made sure we've kept a very large swath of land that borders it that's all wild. So okay. that it kind of creates its own drainage system for what does come down from when rainwater washes through. I and think they call that riparian buffer or some such. Yes, yeah. yes I think so. Um, and so we do a lot of things like that. But then also we talk to people about like they wouldn't have done something like this. They would have farmed all of that land all the way to the creek because they're trying to get as much product as possible right. to be able to sell and keep their families fed. Well, the, the last thing I'm going to make you talk about is, is the success of this little TikTok video, because, because in, in the process of sharing history and getting people to pay attention to history, I'm thinking you've got to use all the tools that you can think of. And apparently this little TikTok video of you all harvesting ice was kind of popular. Just a little bit. So um, very, very recently, within the last month, uh, DuPage County Forest Preserve decided to start up their own TikTok account. And... So the first few videos that went on our on the TikTok were about ice harvesting because that was what was happening specifically at our site. And we have a couple TikTokers on staff. Um, and so we were able to kind of get some videos thrown together, work with the media team for the Forest Preserve and get some videos out there. And now the video that got shared with you was our most popular video. I believe that one has, so this video has 18.6 million views. Um, it has 2.7 million likes, 14.2 thousand comments, and 25,000 shares. And and what's funny is, so as a staff, we of course we we monitor the comments. We kind of just, we don't interact too too much because there's only so much interaction you can do when you get that many views and that many comments uh, yeah, before yeah. it just becomes kind of monotonous and you're just having to re-answer the same questions. But we get a lot of people saying, "Oh my gosh, I live just down the road. I didn't know that was there." I need to go check it out. And it actually boosted people coming out because people wanted to come see ice harvesting or they wanted to come see the farm. Um, And so it's been a great way for us to kind of get out like, Hey, Clyde Creek farm is here. Come check us out because we're a really unique site and you should come experience history with us. And, and, you know, just a crazy thing. I'm thinking if you mailed a postcard, it really wouldn't have been that effective. Um, but um, but the TikTok has really taken off because we've used other social media avenues before. We have Facebook. I know at one point the, the farm had had an Instagram, but they're not definitely not as popular as this TikTok has been. Um, one of the neat things, because we do share it, share it with the rest of the Forest Preserve District, we don't have to be the ones creating the videos all the time. Mm-hmm. So people are also getting to see the different aspects. So there are, are other historical sites. So we have like Mays Lake um, as part of the district, which is early 20th century so kind of more your 1920s kind of era um we also have willowbrook which is a wildlife rehabilitation and rescue center um and so they post a lot of release videos like recently they did a bald eagle yeah. release video. Ooh, neat, 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 yeah yeah um uh we have tubing hills because we are in a snowy re- snowy region oh. which has been the biggest thing i've had to deal with is snow yeah how much snow have you gotten this year um i'm not sure on the measurements but i know the last snow we had was probably between eight and ten inches and you know i've had a few big snows while i was at emory but never quite like that 
Well, and it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have stuck around as long, probably. I'm thinking. No, it's been around for a couple of weeks here. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here you get a big snow. It's here for a couple of days, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, all I know is I am, I am completely smitten with this, this project and I, and it makes me want to drive all the way to Chicago just to see you doing stuff up there. I just think it's amazing. So congratulations on landing this amazing position and thank you for sharing with us about it. Thank you for having me. Well, you bet. And and I hope that, tell us the, the website address in case folks want to look you up and see what you're what you're doing there at Klein Farm, Pine Creek Farm. That's going to be www.dupageforest.org. And when you get to the um, to the web page, you can just look up Klein Creek Farm. It'll be on there with the listing of all the preserves and sites and check us out. DuPage is D-U-P-A-G-E. Mm-hmm. D-U-P-A-G-E. All right. Well, this is exciting. Emily Allison, Emory and Henry class of 2019. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Duck Pond Wall. Thank you for having me. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We hope that you will stick around with WEHC and listen to all the great programming coming up next. And we will see you next week on the wall.